Now for the humor for the week. This was sent to me by Ed Bello, and it's a good one. Blessed are those that can give without remembering and take without forgetting. That's excellent. Blessed are those who can give without remembering and take without, without forgetting. Now this story. One day a florist went to a barber for a haircut. After the cut, he asked about his bill. And the barber replied, I cannot accept money from you. I'm doing community service this week. The florist was pleased and left the shop. When the barber went to open his shop the next morning, there was a thank you card and a dozen roses waiting for him at his door. Later, a cop comes in for a haircut, and when he tries to pay his bill, the barber again replied, I cannot accept money from you. I'm doing community service this week. Uh, the cop was happy and left the shop. The next morning, when the barber went to open up, there was a thank you card, and there were a dozen donuts waiting for him at his door. Then a congressman came in for a haircut, and he went to pay his bill. The barber again replied, I cannot accept money from you. I'm doing community service this week. The congressman was very happy and left his shop. The next morning, when the barber went to open up, there were a dozen congressmen and in, in, in waiting, waiting for a free haircut. <laughs> that screams a message. It doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about today. A number of years ago when I was pastoring a church, in the, in the message I said something to the effect that I would discourage people from attending X-rated and R-rated films that were sexually explicit. Afterwards, a member of the congregation came to me and reproached me. He said, you're teaching legalism. You are a legalist. Well, <laughs> for somebody to call me a legalist, it's like saying you're a liar. It's a dirty word. But God gave me grace. I did not lose my temper. But if you were in my shoes, what would you have said to him? What is a legalist? What is legalism? We'll discuss that at the conclusion of our lesson today. You'll notice that the title of the lesson is Two Deadly Errors. And the one, of course, is legalism and the other is asceticism. But before we get to those two, we have a bit of unfinished business from last Sunday. You remember that we looked at verse chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 15. We just discussed it very quickly where we read, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or through it. It could be him or the cross. Now, we very quickly said, Jesus is going to win. There's victory in Jesus. Remember that? You remember in this passage, Paul talks about Christ dying, being buried, and resurrected again. That has huge implications for us. You remember I used the illustration of, in your mind, put a cross right in the middle. On your right side is your old life. On your left side is your new life. On the right side before Christ left side after Christ. Now, in this passage, he constantly uses the reference in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. When you trusted in Christ, 
you are put into the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We are put into Christ. Because of that, you're looked upon as being buried with Christ. You died and was buried and resurrected with him. So in this passage, he's saying, there's the old life over here. That's gone. There's a new life over here. That's new. The big implication is for us. But verse 15 refers to Christ. It's talking about his victory over demonic powers. In fact, if you will, step back, if you will, to verse 10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. He says two things. You've been made complete in Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. And you've been made complete. Same word, same, same stem. He, all fullness dwells in him. You've been made full in Christ. Then he says, he's the head of all rule and authority. Uh, what's he talking about? What is he talking about is explained in verse 15, where it says, when he had disarmed, that's the idea of stripping off. The Greek has the idea of taking off a jacket or taking off clothes. You have the same word, or the same stem, I should say, back in verse 11. In the middle of the verse, he says, in the removal of the body of the flesh. He's talking about the body of flesh. This body with its sin nature has been stripped off of its effectiveness. Why? The old life has passed, and you have a whole new life here. That old life is stripped off. That's gone. You have a whole new life in Christ. Now, the same thing here. He stripped off. He stripped off the rulers and authorities. The rulers and authorities are the same people you have in verse 10. He's the head of rulers and authorities. How did that come come to pass? He stripped them off. In fact, he did it publicly. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, verse 15, he made a public display of them. Now, what in the brown-eyed world is that talking about? That's talking about Christ's resurrection and ascension. I am dumbfounded that on Easter Sunday, Nothing is said about this great fact of Christ's resurrection and ascension. It looks, there are many passages that refer to it. Uh, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter refers to Christ preaching to spirits in prison. Spirits in prison? Well, that's explained in 2 Peter chapter 2, around verse 6 where it says the angels that sinned, he, it, it says my translation, he cast into hell. A word is used there that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. He put them into Tartarus. In fact, it's a verb. It literally means he Tartarized to them. He put them into Tartarus. What do you mean Tartarus? Tartarus in Greek literature is the lowest possible nether region. The lowest place in hell. And it says he preached to those spirits in prison. Who are those spirits? Well, it's explained in, in, in Jude chapter 6 that it's angels who sinned. In other words, those passages all fit together. 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 2, about verse 6, Jude 6, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 4, and then Jude 6. What does it mean? He's looking back at Genesis 6. 
In Genesis 6, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took to themselves wives of whom they chose. And it goes on to talk about they cohabited and left a strange breed of children, a mongrel race comprised of angels and human. They were destroying the human race. That's satanic. That's satanic. He's looking at angels who did not keep their first abode in Jude 6. He says that angels that sinned, he's kept under everlasting bondage. Well, if you say that looks at the fall of Satan and his hosts, well, they aren't kept under everlasting bondage. He's talking about angels that sinned in a special way. And these angels took on masculine form. And by the way, angels are always male. I don't know if you ever noticed that. But angels are always male. If they took upon them human form, cohabited with women, and produced mongrels, that would destroy God's program for humans. That's why you have the flood. The flood destroyed every human except Noah, his three sons, and their respective wives, eight people. And in heaven, he took these angels that sinned and put them into hell, the lowest possible region. Now, we went from there up to heaven. And he ascended through these, these various strata of rulers and authorities. We realize that there are strata from Paul's writings when he refers to principal, principalities and powers. He's looking at various sta- stages. So we went from the lowest up to the right hand of the Father. Nobody stopped him, making an open display of it. He was like a Sherman tank going through one-inch thick saplings. That Sherman tank would just crush him. Nothing, they, they wouldn't have a ghost of a chance of stopping that, that Sherman tank. Nothing could stop Christ. His ascension to heaven. So he stripped them off. I could just see them pulling on his belt and trying to hold him back, but he just stripped off, went to the right hand of the Father. And then it says at the very end, having triumphed over them through him. The word that's used there, again, is an unusual word, but it has a specific use of a victory parade. You have it again in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumph and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. He leads us in triumph. It's talking about a victory parade. Kent Hughes, who is the pastor of the college church in Wheaton, Illinois, gives a beautiful description of this. He quotes verse 15 from the text and says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, here are his comments. It's extended. He says, the public spectacle of them triumphing over, excuse me, the powers and authorities are the demonic powers arrayed against Christ and his church. This is a picture of a triumphal procession through the streets in celebration of a military victory with the conquered rulers and authorities put on display. The image that Paul had in mind can be seen in Plutarch's description of the three-day triumph given the Roman general Aemilius Paulus upon his return from capturing Macedonia. Great scaffolds were erected in the Forum and along the boulevards of Rome for spectator seating, and all of Rome turned out. 
dressed in festive white. On the first day, 259 chariots <clears throat> displayed in procession the statues, pictures, and colossal images taken from the enemy. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians, as Plutarch tells it, Plutarch tells it, and then he quotes Plutarch. All newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposely with the greatest art, so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, Cretan targets and Thracian bucklers and quivers of arrows lay huddled amongst the horses' bits, and through these there appeared the points of naked swords intermixed with Macedonian cerisas. All these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness that they struck against one another as they were drawn along. And they made a harsh and alarming noise so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy, they would, would not be held without dread. Following the wagons came 3,000. He's talking about 3,000 soldiers. Following the wagons, oh, 3,000 men. Following the wagons came 3,000 carrying the enemy's silver in 750 vessels, followed by more treasure. On the third day came the captives, preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. Next, Macedonian gold. Then the captured king's chariots, chariot, crown, and armor. Then came the king's servants, uh, weeping with hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. Next came his children. Then King Persis himself, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. Finally came the victorious general. Once again, he quotes Plutarch. Seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his right hand, all the army, in like manner with boughs of laurel in their hands, divided into their hands, bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commanders, some singing verses according to the usual songs of triumph and the praise of Melius's deeds. End of quotation. Kent goes on to say, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God the Father achieved a great victory over the evil powers of this world, making a public spectacle of them. He wants us to see that though they still exist, they are defeated. Satan's demons have been sentenced to be in the train of God's victory parade. Thus, we need no longer fear the outcome of our battle with evil. Christ has conquered. We have conquered. And we will conquer. In view of all this, why look to anyone but Christ for fullness? Now that's very, very well written. We are in Christ's victory parade. He leads us in triumph, but especially over the defeated enemies. Now, this morning there was a discussion about Satan being the god of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's called the god of this age, which is true. 
But God is sovereign over Satan. That's why when you have a false prophet, according to Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, when you have a false prophet, don't fear him. Don't fear him. Because his prophecies will not always come true. Sometimes yes. You know why? Satan is in control. But God overrules. And many times his prophecies do not come true. The prophecy under Satan. Because God can overrule. And we're on the winning side. Christ is the head of every spiritual power and authority. Never forget that. Including Satan. Satan could not stop him. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. Tremendous, tremendous thought. Well, that leads us now to capital letter C. The decisions believers in Christ must make. When I say believers in Christ, I don't mean believers who believe in Christ, which is true, of course. But I mean believers who are located in Christ. Believers who are positioned in Christ. Since we believe in Christ, we are in Christ. Therefore, we must make three decisions. Two are deadly. One is positive. We'll discuss the positive next Sunday. But let's look at the two deadly ones. First of all, to renounce legalism. Verses 16 to 19, and that account also says to renounce legalistic practices, and then to renounce dualistic practices. So let's start with legalistic practices, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, don't run past that connective. Therefore, since the old life has passed and we have a new life, since Christ is victorious over every power, therefore, let no one act as your judge. Christ is supreme, not somebody else. Don't let somebody else act as your judge. It literally means don't let anybody else judge you in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, the fact that he mentions a Sabbath day and refers to the festivals is quite clear he's talking about Judaism. You will remember that when we discussed the, the heresy at Colossae, there were two heads to it. The one was... Judaism. These were Jews who said you must become a Jew in order to be saved. You must be circumcised, brought under the law of Moses. And the other was Greek philosophy, which was dualism. Dualism taught that matter is evil. Now it's quite clear he's looking here at Judaism because he refers to these festivals and the Sabbath. He's looking at the Jewish regulations. Now that fits. Don't let anybody stand judging you for food. <laughs> now, for us who are Gentiles, we realize all the food regulations that are in the Old Testament under Judaism. Uh, you can't eat any fish that, do, that don't have any scales or that don't have any uh, fins, which means, of course, you can't eat catfish. It also means you can't have shrimp. You can't have clams. You can't have lobster. I mean, it rules all those out. And for red meat, you have to eat an animal that both chews the cud and has a cloven hoof. Now, it's interesting. Camels chew the cud, but they have a rounded hoof. So they could not eat camel meat. I don't know if you've ever eaten camel meat. It's kind of stringy anyway. 
but, but anyway, but they couldn't eat camel meat. They could not eat pork because while pigs have a cloven hoof, they don't chew the cud. They had all these regulations. So the food or drink. Now, there are not many regulations about drink. If you took a Nazarite vow, you could not drink wine, of course. When priests were involved in certain activities, they could not drink. There were strict regulations about where you stored the water. You could not put water into unclean vessels. So there were restrictions. But don't let me stand and judge your food or drinks. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. The Greek has eating or drinking. It's looking more at the act. But don't let me stand and judge. Or with respect to a festival, the Jews had seven feasts. And if you miss that, ooh, especially for the three required feasts, the Passover and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, now, you can miss those. Or a new moon, the observed moons, or a Sabbath day. Interesting. The Jews were jealous over the Sabbath day. There was a Sabbath day before the law, but there's no law that says you had to keep it. But when Judaism came along, according to Exodus 31 and Ezekiel 12, it became a sign of the covenant of Moses. The Jews knew it. If you desecrated the sign, you're desecrating the whole law. You desecrate the flag of the United States, you're desecrating the United States. I can't get away from that. To desecrate a sign means to desecrate the reality. This wedding ring is a sign of our marriage. If I just flush it down the toilet, that wouldn't say much for, my, my, for our marriage. This sign represented the reality. So the Sabbath day was really significant for the Jews. When you study the Gospels, you recognize that the great conflicts that the religious authorities had with Christ were over the Sabbath. Over and over and over again, disputes over the Sabbath because they guarded that Sabbath meticulously. Now, don't let anybody stand over you with regard to the Sabbath. Now, he explains why. In verse 17, these things, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They're just shadows. The substance is Christ. So when you look at the Old Testament, you have all these shadows, and the reality is Christ who comes, and it will come. Now, it's very, very interesting. When you look at the law, you can see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the law. People who have studied the tabernacle are amazed at all the pictures of Christ that are in the tabernacle. The priesthood looks ahead to Christ. Israel itself is a picture of Christ. And the festivals. The Jews had seven festivals. Seven. Four of them have been fulfilled. Three have yet to be fulfilled. The first festival is the festival of the Passover. The first festival is the Passover. And the beginning of the religious year was the Passover, which, of course, looks back to Exodus chapter 12, when the Jews had their first Passover and they escaped from Egypt. Now, it's interesting. When I talk to people about the Passover, they think, well, it says, I'll pass over you. And what they think it means when they see the blood, that is, they would take the blood of a one-year-old lamb, put it on the two side posts of, a, of the door, the front door, and the, and the lintel. 
And he says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Now, people think that means when I see the blood, I'll skip over you. I'll go to the next house and skip over. Skip. That's not what it says. You look at Exodus chapter 12. It says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and I will not let the death angel come into the house. I'll pass over you to protect you. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation. Look at Exodus 12. That's what you'll see. I'll pass over you, and I'll not, let, I'll not permit the death angel to come in. That, that, that's the beginning of the year. That's the first festival. The second festival, immediately following, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days. Now, they were not supposed to have leavened bread for the Passover, and then seven more years. Those two feasts are so intimately bound together that sometimes together they are called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes they are called the Feast of the Passover. But they're two different feasts. And the Feast of the of the unleavened bread is explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, remove the leaven from the church, from your lives. It means keep clean accounts with God. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So this, this whole age in which we're living, this dispensation, is a time of getting sin out of our lives. The third the Feast of the First Fruits. The first fruits were when, when the barley harvest began to be ripe. Um, the, the barley harvest and, or the barley and the wheat crops were planted in the fall. There were winter wheat, winter barley. And in the spring, when the first barley harvest came in, they were to, to have a celebration of the first fruits. And Christ is called our first fruits. He's the first fruits from the dead. The barley harvest meant there's more to come. Christ, more to come. We are going to be resurrected in the future. It's just a foretaste. So you have Passover, unleavened bread. Then you have the, uh, the first fruits. And then the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost came at the end of the wheat harvest. Barley would mature first, and then the wheat. The wheat crop would come in, and they'd have the Feast of Pentecost, which was a celebration of God's provision. It was something like our Thanksgiving service, a celebration of God's provision. That's why on Pentecost Day, the Holy Spirit was given. You must remember these are Jewish feasts. So the coming of the Holy Spirit was an indication of God's provision for the coming kingdom. God provided the Holy Spirit for Israel to enter that kingdom. That's why in Acts chapter 2, you have the idea of, of the coming of the kingdom, but especially in chapter 3, where Peter says, if you repent, he'll send the Messiah, and seasons of refreshing will come. So it's, it's for, the big, for the God's provision for Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, God also used that for the establishment and the beginning of the church. We didn't know it at the time. It was just God's provision. Now, all four of those are past. Three more are yet to come. The Feast of Trumpets, when God is going to regather Israel. We say the partially fulfilled today, but one day Israel is going to be regathered. The next one is the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur. 
the Day of Atonement, when Israel's sins will be removed. That's exactly what you have in Zechariah 12.10, where he says, I'll send the Spirit upon them, and they will mourn for me. There will be a day of great mourning and repentance, the great day of atonement in the future. Then the final one is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents. <laughs> to this day, if you go to Israel, and you're in Israel on the Day of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll find they have shacks built in their backyards or in their front lawn. Shacks. And they live in those. Why? To indicate that God took care of them for the 40, for the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. God protected them. And that feast is going to be observed in the millennium. Zechariah 14 makes it very clear. The Feast of Pentecost is going to be observed in the millennium. Why? God protected Israel for thousands of years and brought them to the millennium. Just as the Feast of Tabernacles was observed when Jews were in the land, shows God's preservation, so likewise in the millennium. In other words, these are shadows of what is to come. Isn't it interesting? You don't study the shadow of a person. Oh, look at that shadow, it's moving. No, you don't do that. You look at the person. So it is these Old Testament things were just shadows, the prophetic of what is to come, including the Sabbath day. I wish we could dwell on that. That's a big one. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, he talks about a coming Sabbath day, which, of course, is the millennium. Well, I must move on. The, to renounce legalistic practices. Don't, don't get caught with those things. Secondly, to renounce dualistic practices. It becomes a form of legalism. Look now, if you will, at verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Now, that's a hard verb to, do, to translate because it's so rare. It could be let no one judge you, just in that sense. Or it could be used of, a, of an athletic contest. And a referee says, you've had an infraction, you can't participate. Or during the participation, you've had an infraction, no prize for you. It could be let no one rob you of the prize, or it could be just general, don't let anybody judge you. Because Paul so often refers to athletics, I take it that here he's talking about it, let nobody, no one defraud you of your prize, take away your prize, by delighting in self-abasement. That's humility. That's the word tapa, tapanefrosune. It's a long Greek word. Um, I'll just say a quick word about it. I have to move on. In the old Greek culture, humility was despised. It looked at somebody who was just groveling, low down. Christianity exalted it to a virtue. Now, we've got the idea that humility means groveling. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Look at John the Baptist. So humble, he said, I'm not worthy to loose a thong on a sandal of the Lord Jesus. And yet when he asked, who, who is he? He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He didn't say, oh, I can't do anything. I'm nothing. No, he didn't say that. He knew exactly where he fit. Uh, there's a tremendous lesson on humility. But this is self-made humility. See how humble I am. On a day of fasting, I go around looking like an unmade bed. I'm messed up. It's just self-humiliation, not, not genuine humiliation. Self-abasement. 
and the worship of angels. Now, some say that's Judaism, because in the Jewish culture there was a great deal believed about angels. But this may be just another way of talking about spirits and, 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 and powers. I think it is looking at dualism, which says matter is evil. So they say, I, 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 I'm so humble, I, 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 I can't pray to God. In fact, if you notice, notice the word in before self-abasement and the worship of angels, that's exactly what the Greek has. That one preposition ties us together. I'm so humble, I can't pray to God. I'll go to intermediaries, some of this in between. I'm not on a tirade against Roman Catholics because I believe they're born again Roman Catholics. But I can't believe what I hear. Saint Christopher, what's a Saint Christopher's medal for? To pray for safety in a journey. So you're praying to Saint Christopher. Just yesterday on the radio, I was listening to a program put out by Roman Catholics, and they were interviewing a man who was an exorcist, a priest, whose profession in the Roman Catholic Church was exorcism, casting out demons. What point after point after point, right on. I would say, amen, amen. Then he said, we should pray to Michael. We should pray to Michael for deliverance from these angels. Pray to Michael. That's exactly what he says not to do. And then, of course, there's praying to Mary. Some people say, well, the reason we pray to Mary is because Mary was the mother of Jesus. And Jesus would not turn down a request from his mother. So you pray to Mary in order for, Jesus, for your prayer to be heard. I've heard others say you pray to Mary because Jesus is so busy. You don't want to bother him. That's exactly what the Bible says not to do. Paul says there's one God and one mediator between God and man. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, which indicates another error. They're praying to Jesus. Our prayers are to be addressed to the Father in the name of Jesus. We have no right to come to God the Father in our strength. We come to God the Father because we're in, in Christ. So don't pray to angels or some intermediary. Oh, I'm so humble, I can't pray to God directly. Then he goes on to say this. Taking his stand on visions or something he has seen, something is, he, he claims as a revelation of God, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, isn't that interesting? I'm so humble. I'm so humble. But look at how great I am because of my visions. That's exactly what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Because of the exaltation of the, the tremendous visions that I received, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, lest I be exalted. So a person would say, I've seen these visions. I've seen these things. And he's proud. It exalts his fleshly mind, a mind governed by the sin nature, by the flesh. Now, verse 19 goes on. I must hurry. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. 
not holding the head, which means they are separated from the head. They're not looking to Christ. If you want to stress this a little bit more, look at John 15. In John 15, in the great upper room discourse, I'm the vine, ye are the branches. Abide in me, you'll bring forth fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. You can't accomplish a blame thing without Christ. And here these people were not holding Christ. They're not clinging to him. They were separated from Christ. And instead, Christ is the head. We're the body. And we are to be supplied for spiritual growth by the very joints and parts of our body. I, I wish we had time, but I can't. And you may just want to jot down Ephesians 4, which is much longer, describing the same thing. And he says, Christ is the head. He's given spiritual gifts to the church. And these spiritual leaders, he gives four gifts, spiritual leaders to work with the congregation for the work of the ministry. In other words, the leaders of the Stonebriar Community Church should be working with the people so that they can carry on ministry. I'm not trying to polish the apple, but I thank God for the many, I mean, there are scores of people in this class that are involved in various aspects of the ministry. And, and, and they work together so that together we may grow. In fact, this passage is saying that if you do not carry out your spiritual gift, if you do not carry out the ministry God has given to you for other people, you're keeping other people from growing. When all of us work together as a body, there's spiritual growth. And that's the point. Let me mock Chanel and move on now very quickly to page two. To renounce asceticism, verse 20. If you've died with Christ, that's assumed you have, I'm assuming you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Now remember we had that elementary principles of the world way back in verse eight, where he says that, that Christ uh, that the traditions of men are according to the uh, elementary principles of the world. We spent some time on that, saying that it could be elementary spiritual principles or it could just be ABCs of the faith. It could be either one. Because he goes on to talk about spiritual powers, he's probably talking about elementary spiritual principles. And you died to all that. That's the old life. That's the old life. It's on the right-hand side. You're on the other side of the cross. If you died with Christ, the elementary principle of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees, to dogmas? It's literally the word for dogma. Why are you submitting to dogmas such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? You notice they're getting stronger and stronger. Don't handle it. Don't, don't taste it. Don't even touch it. Now, what's he talking about? Dualism. If matter is evil, stay away from matter. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stay away from matter. How do you do that? Don't touch it. Wait, wait, I am matter. What do I do with this? Well, let's move on out to the futility, which all refers to things destined to perish with the using. Ah, they're obviously talking about foods, first of all. They perish with using. 
Mark chapter 7 makes this very clear. The Lord is very, very open and blunt about this. The, the disciples are being accused of eating food with unwashed hands. And so Christ says, wait, wait, wait. It's not what, what you put into your mouth that defiles. You eat something, it goes into your digestive system. It's very clear in the Greek. It's excreted in a bowel movement and goes into the toilet. Now, what he's saying here is food is meant for eating. Why do you think God gave us foods? It's meant to be destroyed by eating. That's just futile to say there's spiritual living by depriving yourself of foods. Touch not, taste not, handle not. So he said, they just just perish. He goes on to say, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men that do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, is according to human traditions. I'm going to take a minute just for an illustration. You need a break. A number of years ago, I was asked to speak at a youth camp, a very legalistic camp. They had a whole list of things that I had a sign I would not do and I'm not doing. And then they, they put down as a proof verse, Colossians 2.21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's ironical. Christ is saying, don't be submitted to rules like that. And here they're putting that rule, which was just according to human tradition. Now he goes on to talk about the futility. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion. Doesn't that sound righteous? And self-abasement. There you have that word humility again. Self-abasement. Severe treatment of the body. Now, if this is legalism, I mean, if this is asceticism, what they're saying is this. Oh, matter is evil. My body is evil. What do I do with my body? What do I do with my body? Oh, you starve it. Make it cold. Be miserable. Flagellate yourself. It's looking at self-humiliation, self-made religion. Stupid. Absolutely stupid. Um, this is one extreme. The other extreme was the other, uh, was the opposite. If matter is evil, my body is evil, I should beat my body up, miserable. Or the other one is this, and this is the opposite extreme, the opposite result. If matter is evil, what do I would do with my body? Well, my body is not who I am. I just live in this body. So therefore, since I'm not my body, just let the body go. I mean, have a great fling. Just, just enjoy yourself. Make whoopee. Because it's not you, it's your body. Interesting, when you read First John, it's the second thing he's talking about. Here Paul is talking about asceticism. Be mean to your body. Then he goes on to say, um, they, they have this, this evidence that, that looks like wisdom and great religion, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They don't do a thing about the sin nature being placated in your body. The story is told, and I know it's true, that when Harry Ironside was converted as a young convert, he went to an elder in the church and said, I'm having a problem with pride. How do I handle this? The elder said, if you want to have a, have, have a matter of, of the pride, if you want to have that handled, what you do is to put a big sign in the front of your body and a big one at the back of your body with a scripture verse on each one of the, 
on the signs and walk all day long through the city just carrying that sign. And he did. People laughed at him. They jeered at him. They mocked him. And at the end of the day, you know what Harry Ironside said? I bet there aren't many people that would have done what I did. <laughs> it didn't have a thing to do with taking care of pride. He had built his pride up. Well, this brings us to the conclusion, and very quickly, I must quickly, I could only take one or two things here. Number one, I want you to recognize you're not under the law of Moses. He includes the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was the fourth commandment. You're not even under the Ten Commandments. Romans 7 makes that very clear. He says you died to the law. Then he quotes the law. He says the law says that you shall not covet the Tenth Commandment. You're not under any part of the, of the law of Moses. It's a totally different system. It's over here. You're under a whole new system over here. This is a package. This is a package. You're not under the law of Moses. Secondly, what is legalism? I spent a great deal of time this week thinking about what is legalism. And I've came to the conclusion that it means five things. Five things. Number one, it means no reference to grace. Grace is omitted. Secondly, no reference to faith. You're not trusting somebody else. Number three, it's self-strength. You're depending on yourself. Number four, am I going too fast? Number three, you're depending on yourself. Number four, leads to self-righteousness, pride. And number five, it will lead to judgment of others, invariably. So you have five aspects. No reference to grace, no reference to faith. You're self-dependent, self-righteousness, and criticism of others. Very quickly, turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. The greatest illustration of this very thing is seen in this passage. Verse 9. I'm going to go over two minutes. I hope the Spanish church forgives me. Verse 9. He also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in, them, in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Notice that. They were self-righteous. They depended on themselves. And you know, they trusted themselves. They were self-righteous. They viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax together. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. I always get a kick of that, praying to himself. He wasn't praying to God. He was just talking to himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax together. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all that I get. But the tax together, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Did you notice the high priest? He was standing in his own righteousness, standing in his own strength, boasting his own righteousness, criticizing another. But the publican, grace, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. Faith, I'm a sinner, and only you can justify me. So you have to have five aspects, and when you have those five, you have legalism, self-made righteousness. Don't do that. It's grace. 
Everything good I have is a gift from God. Every ability that you have is a gift from God. Every opportunity that you have is a gift from God. The health that you have is a gift from God. Everything good that you have is a gift from God. It's grace, grace, grace. And so is salvation. So is salvation. There's more. Because that's true, all you can do is just trust in God and be like that publican. Oh, God, be merciful to me. I'm such a sinner. That's true of every one of us. That's true of everyone. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Don't be bound up with legalism. It's from the pit. All it does is minister to yourself. Makes you proud and critical. It's grace, grace, grace. Faith, faith, faith. And the method of justification always determines the method of sanctification. How you're saved? By grace through faith. By simply trusting Christ. How do you walk with Christ? By grace through faith. The method of justification always determines the method of sanctification. I can't develop that. Our Father God, how can we say thank you for your grace, for your mercy, We simply cast ourselves on you. And we recognize that without you, we can do nothing, nothing, nothing. And so we walk by grace in faith, knowing that that's how we were saved, and that's how we continue our walk. Watch over us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.